All right, maybe somebody will read the first verse of the second chapter of Ruth. You got it, Brother Chapel? Go ahead and read it out. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Who is Boaz a type of? Jesus. Jesus. Typologically, Boaz is a picture of Christ. And in this passage, it is mentioning the fact that he's a kinsman. And the role that Boaz carries out in the book of Ruth is to be a kinsman redeemer. Now, that's a perfect example of a good reason to at least do a cursory study of the underlying language. Because the word kinsman here is not the normal word for a kinsman that's a kinsman redeemer. It's translated kinsman into the English, and you'll see that word elsewhere in the book of Ruth, but they're not the same word. This is a different word from Gaal, or where we get the word Goel. It's talking about a kinsman redeemer. I'm not going to talk about how Boaz was a kinsman redeemer right here, because this really isn't yet naming him that. He doesn't really begin to take on that role in any direct way until about the third chapter, the 12th verse. So when we get there, we'll talk about what a kinsman redeemer was and how the law applied to what a kinsman redeemer was to do. We're going to talk about it in more detail when we get to the third chapter, but a kinsman redeemer had multiple roles that he might play. If somebody's land needed to be bought back, the nearest kinsman was the one responsible for that, and he was the one who was supposed to do it. If he chose not to do it or refused to do it, there's a whole series of things he had to do, and you'll see this later in the book of Ruth, and then that would cede that right to the next kinsman, which is what happened with Boaz, you know. Boaz wasn't the nearest kinsman. There was a nearer kinsman than Boaz. And that kinsman had to cede his right to Ruth and to redeeming Naomi's line. And when he did that, it opened up the way for Boaz. Just like Orpah's decisions were based on selfishness and Ruth's were selflessness, the same thing with the two kinsmen. The near kinsman's choices were based on selfishness. He wanted what was best for him. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do what was best for him? He did what was best for you. Who knows what the name Boaz might mean? I might warn you ahead of time, it's very undecided among Hebrew scholars what Boaz's name means. There is a pretty traditional meaning, and imagine some of you may know it. Why don't you tell me what Boaz's name might mean? Strength. Strength? In him is strength. That is the most traditional rendering. I personally think that that's the proper rendering. I'm going to give you a couple others, and I'll tell you why. As I said, the etymology and the meaning of Boaz's name is very uncertain. There's a lot of debate about what his name could mean. That name, by the way, it's pronounced Boaz. If you remember any of you Hebrew students, an A sound in Hebrew is usually Ah as in father. So it's not Boaz, it's Boaz. So there's several ways that you can interpret the name Boaz. One of the most common ways that some have interpreted it in more of a Hebrew-Aramaic type of way, is that it could mean fleetness or quickness. A lot of the modern Hebrew and Aramaic scholars believe that's what his name means. Now, that wouldn't have a lot of meaning for us, and it wouldn't seem to match well with the context. There's an interesting thing about biblical names. They quite often carry some connotation about the person. And it's not as if they got the name later. You know, in some cultures, they don't name somebody really until that person had actually done something that stood out. That's not how it is in the Bible most of the time. They received names, and quite often they lived up to their names. They were quite often very similar to the meaning of their name. And I don't think fleetness or quickness describes Boaz in the picture that you see him. That is what a lot of the modern Hebrew scholars believe his name means. 
Another possible interpretation, taking it from more of an Arabic root, which would mean strong of spirit or vigorous. Where we get the traditional interpretation of Boaz's name, and you know I'm going to end up pronouncing it Boaz because that's what we commonly do. Where we get the traditional interpretation of his name from is by taking the name Boaz and dividing it into two words. Where you get the idea that in him is strength, Bo is in him, and Ots or Ats, O-T-S is actually how it would be spelled, but you could pronounce it almost like the word Oz, O-Z. So it's Boaz. Ots or Oz is strength or might. So dividing his name in two is where it comes up with the idea that it would mean in him is strength or in him is might. Can you think of another place in the Bible where that name is used for something that's not a person but an inanimate object? Robin, what did you have? The pillars. Pillar of Solomon. One of the two pillars of Solomon's temple, Boaz and Joachim. What would seem to make more sense to you to name that pillar? Quickness or strength? strength. It's a pillar. Light bearing. <laughs> that would give you a clue that that name probably is intended to mean in him is strength. If it is, you do realize you built the temple. Solomon. How is Solomon related to Boaz? Is he related to him? Anybody know how he's related to him? There's the problem. It's counting the greats, isn't it? You need to add a great. He's the great-great-grandson of Boaz. Wouldn't it make perfect sense that he might name one of those pillars? And I'm sure God is who instigated the name, but I'm sure Solomon, knowing what his great-grandfather's name was, thought this would be a wonderful name. If the Lord put it in his mind, which I wouldn't doubt for a second, I'm sure he thought, wonderful name for one of these pillars. Remind me of my great-grandfather, that mighty man of God. And it means in him is strength. I do think it means in him is strength. The historical character of Boaz was obviously a man of strength. He had strength of character. You can see this in the decisions he made and the way that he treated Ruth. Even when he had no responsibility whatsoever for Ruth, Boaz was protecting her, wasn't he? You're going to find that out later in the story if you haven't read it. He was protecting Ruth. Even when he didn't need to protect her, he wasn't responsible for her. He went above and beyond in terms of his reaching out to make sure Ruth was protected. And he obviously was a man of strength in a multiple number of ways, not just character, which is the most important. But he was a man of capacity as well. He obviously was a man of wealth and means, and he was a man that had standing and authority and influence. You can see the people that were working for him, and it doesn't appear that there was even a question when Boaz asked for something to be done. If Boaz says, this is what I want done... I want Ruth taken care of, or I want you to leave this for her. You didn't see any arguments going on. You didn't see any discussion. Those men did exactly what Boaz asked. It's just interesting. You said it, not necessarily from the context, but that quickness, um, it just appears. I mean, just the very fact that they carried out his orders quickly. He moved on um, Ruth's situation quickly. Revenge of blood, you know, was had to be quick. He just moved you know, to pursue, mm-hmm. and, and the very fact that Jesus quick of an understanding, it's just interesting that, that, that it's tied in. It's one of those examples, Brother Kosa, that I think are interesting when you get into some of this language that can be multi-layered. It may be that just a slightly different pronunciation of that name was meant to tell you something else about his person. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But I do think that Boaz is a beautiful picture of Christ. The little snapshots we see of Boaz's character are a beautiful example of Christ. I think it shows that he's a he's a man of wealth, power, grace, mercy, all the attributes that we see the Lord in in his position of a spiritual head over other people. 
Uh, he has wheat fields, barley fields, he has servants, he has people working for him. Um, he's respected in the community. Uh, his words hold weight of authority. Um, and Naomi recognizes after where, when Ruth comes back that this is none other than God directing you to a near kinsman. It wasn't Naomi's kinsman, it was her husband's kinsman. It was Elimelech's kinsman. And here she saw the hand of God all through that and pointed and told Naomi, now this is what you need to do. And so it's showing Jesus and his position of authority over the churches that are his. Boaz is not the leader of that area. He's a leader, but he's not the like main person. There's other there's judges that sit at the gate. There's different ones, but it's showing he has a group of men underneath him that he's working with, mm -hmm. and he's directing them. You stay by my reapers, and you don't go to any other field. There was other fields in the city. There was other churches in the city. So it shows Jesus right where he's at today, over the body and over you know working in the world right now. At least that's how I see. That's right, and we'll probably talk about that more when we talk about the fact that she was led to his field. She just went led to a field. That's a good point. I think if you were to try to go down through a list of historical figures and find anybody who could fill this role that would live up to Boaz's name, you couldn't find another person that fills that role better than Christ. In him is strength. And it is typologically descriptive of him. He is the mightiest son of God among all the sons of God, whether celestial or terrestrial, and in him is strength. And he's mighty in the way Brother Chapel was just bringing up. He was mighty in wealth. Now that is a tricky word because that word usually means valor or strength. They probably translated it wealth here because of the context. Boaz obviously appears to be a man of means, so they would translate it in a way that would convey that. But we'll come back around to that. I want to first, while it's on my mind, talk about this word that's translated kinsman here. I mentioned that it's not the Hebrew word that's generally used for a kinsman. It's the Hebrew word meuda. It means a kinsman, but it means usually in the sense of somebody that's a close companion or a near friend, not a goel, which is some of the language that's used for a kinsman redeemer. The other times that you see this kind of word used in Ruth, it is the Hebrew word ga'al, which is talking about a kinsman redeemer. But here, it's meuda. Why do you think it would use a different Hebrew word here for Boaz than it does elsewhere in terms of describing him as a kinsman? Why is he described as a kinsman here where it's essentially just saying he was a good friend, a near companion? Some of the rabbis believed that that meant he and Elimelech were very close, that they were not just relatives, but close relatives. They knew each other well. The rabbinical tradition about Boaz is that he was Elimelech's nephew, you know. So they would say they were very close, and that's what this word is referring to. Kinsman that was a very near kinsman in terms of he was very familiar with Elimelech, very close with him. You know, they're not going to be using the word for a kinsman redeemer here because he's not filling that role yet. He's not even the one in line to fill it yet. That's why I wish they hadn't translated this kinsman because it gives the impression that this is saying he's the kinsman redeemer. And it may very well be that the reason this word Mehuda is used instead of Gaal is because he's not filling that role yet. And maybe he wasn't even on the radar, so to speak, of Naomi or anyone else looking at him and thinking, well, he could deliver us. 
Boaz isn't even given the title of a kinsman redeemer yet. He's just given this title, Meuda. It comes from a Hebrew root word, yada, which means, and this is important, to know by experience. So this is somebody who knows the family by experience. Now, that's kind of a complicated way of saying that they've spent some time together. They know each other well. They're close. How would that apply to Jesus? Isn't it interesting, the very first time that Boaz is mentioned, it refers to him as a kinsman with a Hebrew word that means at its root to be a kinsman because he knows his kin by experience? Why do you think I think that's significant? He came down from heaven to be part of us. He took on human flesh, didn't he? You know what makes him our kinsman? The first thing that makes him our kinsman is the fact that he came down and became one of us. That didn't make him our kinsman redeemer. He had to die on that cross to be our kinsman redeemer, but he was our kinsman. He became our kinsman so he could become our kinsman redeemer. There's a few verses you can use to support that, by the way. Hebrews, the second chapter, 14 through the 18th verse, where it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now I'm reading this whole passage for a reason. There's two statements here about how he came down, so to speak, and took on human form. The first one was in that 14th verse when it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. You realize it isn't talking about him eating meat. It's talking about the fact that he partook of a flesh and blood body. Just like the children, meaning the human children, have a flesh and blood body. He took on a flesh and blood body. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Now mind you, where it says him and the nature of is in italics, meaning that's not in the Greek. If you want to read it literally from the Greek, it says, for verily he took not on angels, but he took on the seed of Abraham. And a lot of the modern Greek scholars say that is not talking about him taking on human nature since that was inserted. That's just saying he didn't take responsibility for the angels. He took responsibility for the seed of Abraham. That isn't my personal belief. And one of the reasons it isn't my personal belief is because of the 14th verse. The 14th verse is talking about the fact that he took on flesh and blood just like they did. And the context in repeating this just a few verses later seems to be saying that again. He took on not an angelic body, not an angelic form and nature, but on a human body and nature. So I personally think that that's the case regardless of the italics, especially because of the 14th verse. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Again, it reinforces that. You notice that right after it says that about taking on the seed of Abraham, it says he was made like unto his brethren. So this is talking about the type of body and existence that he received, not who he took responsibility for. He did take responsibility for humans, but that's not what I believe that this passage is talking about that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertain to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he hath himself suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. The whole context of that passage is he was in the type of a body that would have had to endure pain and suffering and emotional distress and temptations. That's the context, isn't it? That's why I said it's interesting that the very first mention of Boaz in the book of Ruth, it gives him the title kinsman that doesn't mean Gaal or Goel. It means someone that is close to their kin by experience. They know what it is to be a part of that family. And that's what Jesus is. He's someone that knows what it is to be part of the human family. 
I'll give you two more verses that talk about that. There's a couple others. But two chapters later in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the 15th verse, it says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with our infirmity, feeling of our infirmities, I think it says, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. So the reason he could be touched by our infirmities is because he had an existence like us. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now notice this statement, Who being in the form of God... Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know what that says there. That's a very unfortunate translation. It really means who being in the form of God considered not equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's exactly, I believe, how the New American Standard translates ESV, I think, translates it very close to that as well. That's what the Greek is really saying, that he wasn't trying to grasp a level of equality with God, which is almost the opposite of what it looks like it's saying in the King James where it says that who thought it not robbery. No, exactly the opposite, as if Jesus... It wouldn't be stealing for me to take equality with God. It's not at all. It says the opposite. It says he wouldn't have even considered. And grasping there, the word grasping is the word that's used for someone to steal something. Like a thief that breaks in a home and steals something or someone that assaults you and takes something from you. He would have never considered trying to make himself equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. This is what happened when he became like us. We are people of no reputation. Any reputation we have is dependent upon his reputation, his name. And he took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men. This is the same context as Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because he did all this, because he took on this condition and bore the things that he had to bear, God hath also highly exalted him given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I think the use of this Hebrew word meuda here is a hint that this is somebody that was very familiar with family. Maybe that Elimelech and Boaz were close. That's not hard to imagine. There's a lot of families where there are cousins or uncles and nephews or aunts and nieces or other relationships, and they have a good, close relationship, and it very well may be that Elimelech and Boaz were close when Elimelech still lived in Bethlehem. But I want to reinforce, at this point in the story, Boaz isn't even on the radar as being a kinsman redeemer. This is just somebody who's being introduced in the story as someone who had a close family connection with the family of Elimelech and Naomi. And the reason he's being introduced this way is so that we understand in the next few verses why it is that Boaz took responsibility like he did and gives us a little clue into the fact that Boaz may be the person to take full responsibility here in just the next couple chapters. Anybody know who Boaz's father and mother were? They're recorded in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. Do you know who Boaz's parents were? His father's name is not one that's probably very common. It's not one here off in the Bible, but his mother's name you ought to know. Rahab, the woman from Jericho. Rahab is what his mother's name was. We'll figure out if that was the same Rahab. His father's name would be spelled like Salmon. Salmon is how you'd pronounce it in Hebrew. S-A-L-M-O-N. S-A-L-M-O-N. Salmon and Rahab or Rahab. What's interesting about those parents? She was not Jewish either. One was Canaanite. If that's the same one, it's not, she's not Jewish. Well, what Brother Coase and Brother Chapel both said, she was not a Hebrew. She was a Canaanite. 
Don't you find it pretty interesting if this was the same Rahab, that Boaz's mother was from outside the line of Israel and Boaz was going to marry a wife that was from outside the line of Israel? Isn't that interesting? Have you ever put that together? By the way, it's generally assumed that this Rahab that's mentioned, it's in Matthew 1.5, it's generally assumed that this is the same Rahab that they delivered from Jericho. Everybody knows the story of Rahab, don't they? By the way, there's a lot of debate about what her occupation was, ranging everything from somebody that was a keeper of an inn to a pretty dark occupation. And the word that is used for her occupation can be interpreted several ways, so it's still not clear exactly what her role was. Some would say she was everything from a harlot to an innkeeper, essentially. That language is very hard to determine which role she fell into. There are some hints here and there. How many Rahabs are mentioned in the Bible? That's a question we have to ask ourselves first, because maybe it's another Rahab. How many Rahabs are mentioned in the Bible? Anybody know? She is the only one. Unless these are two different Rahabs. The only Rahab that's mentioned in the Old Testament is the Rahab they delivered from Jericho. And then somebody named Rahab is mentioned again as the mother of Boaz. And it would be awfully odd to mention her name if it wasn't somebody that people didn't know who that was that you're referring to. Why would you mention her name at all? Most time in the genealogies, the ladies' names aren't mentioned unless they had a significant role of some kind. Sometimes they had a very positive role. They influenced the line of their children, even though the father was maybe a wicked king. And so the mother was named, or vice versa. They may have been somebody that was wicked and influenced their children in a wrong way. When the ladies are mentioned in these patriarchal genealogies, it's because they did something significant, good or bad. If Rahab is his mother directly, and he's, let's say, 50 years old, you're talking 50 years after Joshua went in and Joshua would have probably still been alive in that day and age that he's in, or soon, just shortly after passing off the scene. Was Rahab a grandmother or a direct mother? There's the tricky part, Brother Chapel. There are times in the genealogies that someone will say so-and-so was the father of so-and-so when it actually was the grandfather. I'm not suggesting that's the case here, by the way. There's a couple reasons that can happen. One reason is if that grandfather was actually the one who raised the child. Maybe the father died very young or something else happened. And thus they just skip over that and they name the grandfather. There's at least one example in the scripture where somebody is named as the father of somebody who is clearly their grandfather or maybe great-grandfather. There's another reason. It could be that the father had done something despicable and was written out of the genealogical record, and so they just went from the grandfather or great-grandfather, whoever it might be, and jumped down to the son and said the father of. There are biblical precedents for that being done. That is a possibility. That is usually the challenge that people raise to this, is how could this be Rahab? But I want you to remember what era Boaz and Ruth are in. We're looking at the books of the Bible, and we're seeing Joshua, Judges, Ruth, as if there's hundreds of years in there. You realize those are very tightly overlapped. First of all, Ruth occurred during the time of the judges. And the judges occurred directly after Joshua. So it would be very dependent upon two things. Number one, how far into the time of judges Boaz and Ruth's lives were being lived. Number two, how old was Boaz? Now, I'm not suggesting this is true, but you know what the rabbinical tradition is of Boaz's age when he married Ruth? Somebody want to take a guess? It's a round number. That'll make it easy for you. Older than that. 80. Now, I'm not telling you that's right, but the rabbinical tradition is that Boaz was 80, and I doubt Ruth was more than 20s. I can see him being 50, 60 years old. Almost all Jewish tradition holds that he was older 
But one of the most common traditions is, again, I'm not suggesting this is true. This is just tradition. But one of the most common rabbinical traditions that he was 80, which if that were true, you could see how there could be a gap enough that Rahab could have been his mother. And it depends on where he falls in the period of the judges as well. Gills has his statement that he was a grandson of Nashon, uh, prince of the tribe of Judah, who offered a dedication in number 712. Is that something? Nashon is Salman's father. So that wouldn't change it. That would be the same thing. Just in case you don't know the story of Rahab, it's just a snapshot. It's in the second chapter of Joshua, sixth chapter of Joshua. But this lady, whatever her role was in the city of Jericho, she obviously lived right up against the wall. And when the spies came, she protected the spies that Joshua had sent in to spy out Jericho. And one of the promises that were made to her because she protected the spies is that when the city fell, her and her family would be delivered. And she put a red cord in her window so they would know where it was that she lived so that they could get her out of there. And she was delivered. Again, if we're going to tie this to Boaz, there's all kinds of things that we don't know. We don't have any idea how young Rahab was when Jericho fell. She could have been very young. I don't mean a teenager, but she could have been fairly young. And it's very possible that she was directly his mother. It would be very significant if she was, considering. The most traditional view is that this was the same Rahab. Not only because it's the only person named Rahab in the Bible, I told you that when a female is named in these very masculine patriarchal genealogies, it's for a reason. It's not random. They're named because they did something very significant and their name needs to be recorded. Why would her name have been recorded at all unless it was the same Rahab? There's no other Rahab mentioned in the Bible. and It doesn't tell you what she did, so why would it mention her at all unless she was the same Rahab? That'd be one pretty simple argument. Several of the New Testament writers mention Rahab. And they do it in a positive way. 11th chapter of Hebrews, do you realize that Rahab is listed among the heroes of the faith? It's in the 31st verse. Do you realize James, the brother of Jesus, in James 2.25 refers to her in a very favorable way? He uses her as an example of someone that was justified by her works. What he meant was pretty simple. She didn't just believe in the God of the Israelites. She took action. She put her life on the line to protect those spies. That was her faith in shoe leather. Look, if you're going to get those two men, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, to compliment you, you probably were pretty significant. Given that they're talking about her in a complimentary way, given that there's no other Rahabs mentioned in the Bible, given that this woman Rahab is mentioned very distinctly and clearly in Jesus' genealogy, and it doesn't tell you why, which would seem to infer you'd know who this was, you wouldn't need any other information. The only out that there would be that this may not be his mother is if there was a genealogical leap where a generation or so was passed. But even if that were the case, it wouldn't change the fact that, let's say she was his grandmother. She obviously must have been the one who did a lot of the raising of Boaz or had a tremendous effect on his life. And that still conveys the same point. And that is what's so interesting about this, that the mother or grandmother or whatever role she was of Boaz was a Gentile woman who had no business being a part of the kingdom of God, and yet she was included, and not only included, but highly praised by some of the most significant apostles, just like the woman he was going to marry. If that was his mother, do you realize that it very well could be God just strategically laying the groundwork in Boaz's heart so that he wouldn't have the kind of prejudice against this Moabite girl because his own mother was a Canaanite? And he's probably thinking, my mother was a godly, or grandmother, whoever she might have been. She was a godly woman, and she came from that background that shouldn't have been a part. 
Why can't I give this young lady a chance? She obviously is demonstrated to be a godly woman. You see how God could have orchestrated that so that Boaz would have been ready to accept someone like Ruth, given his own family line? I mentioned earlier, I'll mention this again because it ties into who Boaz is. This is, again, a tradition that I'm by no means espousing this, but there is a tradition among the Jewish rabbis that Boaz is the same as Ibzan, one of the judges in Judges 12, 8 to 10. I told you in one of our earlier classes in Ruth, one of the main reasons they believe that is because it says that Ibzan was a native of Bethlehem. Though some people believe that was the Bethlehem in Zebulun rather than in Judah, which would kind of nullify the whole argument. Boaz is described here, and Brother Chapel was mentioning some of these qualities. He's described here, if you read the Hebrew literally, as Ish Gibor Hayil. I think some of you that went through the Hebrew class know what the Hebrew word Ish is, don't you? Husband. Thank you, Sister Wilma. Ish is husband or a man. By the way, this is something that might be significant in the day we're living in right now where there's these arguments that get made all the time about whether or not God intended it just to be a man and a woman in a marriage. Do you realize the word translated husband also is the word for a man? That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And Isha, which can mean a woman, also refers to a wife. God built into the words the meaning that a husband is a man and a wife is a woman. Ish Gibor. Gibor sound familiar to you? There's a title of Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6, El Gibor, the mighty God. Gibor is mighty. So Ish Gibor Hayil, a mighty man of wealth. I told you the Hebrew word translated wealth, it's the word Hayil here, usually is translated strength or power or even valor. Do you realize this is a title that's used for Gideon in Judges 6.12 and Jephthah in Judges 11.1? It calls both of them mighty men of valor. So this could be referring to Boaz as a mighty man of valor. But the reason that the translators translated a mighty man of wealth, I mentioned earlier, in the context of the story, he's a man obviously of means, he's got property, he's got people working for him, he's obviously got money. It isn't picturing him as a soldier or a warlike individual, is it? But that doesn't mean that isn't what was being said here, because usually this does mean a mighty man of valor. But in the context, you can spread it out to mean wealth or property. Now, here's why. Because what that word really means, hayil, is capacity, in the sense that you have capacity to act. Like a man that's a mighty, valorous man means he's got courage. He's got the capacity to act against his enemies. It could also mean you've got the capacity to finance something. You've got the capacity to feed a lot of people with the fields of grain that you have. When the translators looked at this, they were looking at the context and trying to figure out what is Hayil supposed to mean here, and they came up with wealth. But it could mean power or even valor, as I said. No matter which interpretation you take, Christ fills both, doesn't he? He is a mighty man of valor, and he is a mighty man of wealth. It wouldn't matter how you would translate it. He fills them both. I told you, Isaiah 9.6 calls him El Gibor, the mighty God. Isaiah 63, 1-5, when it's talking about him as the one that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, traveling in the greatness of his strength. It says glorious in his apparel first, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Isn't that interesting? Because that's really what the kinsman redeemer did. He saved his kindred. And here's one that's mighty to save. 
You see him described in this warlike way, I'm talking about Christ, in Psalms 45, 3-5, where he is called most mighty. Again, the word gibor. And he is the firstborn son of God, so you couldn't imagine an individual in all of creation that is wealthier than Christ. Do you realize he's the heir of the most powerful being in the universe? And his father, Psalms 50 verse 10 says, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That makes you a pretty wealthy son if your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, wouldn't you say? There's a couple verses that usually go along with this idea that he was a man of great wealth and abundance and power and authority. If you're talking about Jesus, John 3.35, where it says, The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. In Matthew 28.18, when Jesus said to them, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And there's many passages you could quote that talk about the spiritual riches of God that are available through Christ. So certainly, no matter how you look at Christ being a mighty man of valor, Boaz picturing him as a mighty man of valor, mighty man of wealth, he would fit either of those two descriptions. What I think is really interesting here is that Boaz later, when he's referring to Ruth, uses a partial feminine form of this exact title that's used for him. Eshet Chayil. That means a virtuous woman. Do you realize that's exactly the title that's used in Proverbs 31 when it's talking about the virtuous woman and it describes her? Eshet Chayil. It is a feminine form of the title that Boaz was given when it calls him Ishgibor Hayil. It just leaves out the mighty. So it's saying a virtuous woman, Eshet Chayil. He calls Ruth that in Ruth 3.11. Now I think there's a hidden little clue in that. The bride is going to be like the bridegroom. The bridegroom is a man of valor and virtue, and the bride is going to have to be a woman, a feminine element that has the same valor and virtues that her husband has. All right, let's read the second and third verse. That's all the further we're going to go tonight is through the second and third verse. Who wants to read that for us? You got it back there, Sister Susan? Read it out nice and loud for us. Ruth 2, 2 and 3. And by the way, it is so good to see Brother and Sister Deed back there tonight. So glad to see you come in. Go ahead and read it out loud for us if you don't mind. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hat was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. There's some meat in this few statements here. The central theme of the entire book of Ruth is gleaning, you realize. And here's where we start to see it happening. Anybody know what gleaning is? To gather. It's not reaping. It's what follows the reaping, really, in the biblical sense. The reaping occurs in what's left over. People go in and gather. The Hebrew root lakat, it's L-A-K-A-T, is used 12 times in the book of Ruth to refer to gleaning. So this is a pretty central theme to this book. In the Mosaic Law, there's a very specific prescription regarding gleaning. There's several statements. I'll give you three of them that give you all the definition of what gleaning covers. But before we go there, I want to see if anybody can tell me, when the law of gleaning was instituted by God at Sinai, who was it intended to provide for? The poor and needy. Who else? Widows. Widows. There's two more. 
the orphans, fatherless. So orphans, the poor, widows. One more. This isn't one you'd think. Strangers, thank you, Sister Robin. You know why? Because God told them you were strangers and you need to treat strangers right because you were strangers yourselves in Canaan and Egypt. So strangers, the indigent or the poor, widows and orphans. And you have to actually get all three of the passages to get all of this because some of the passages don't tell you all these are protected. You have to get each passage to get the whole spectrum. Leviticus 19, 9 to 10. Now listen to the prescription here. Listen to the specifics of what they were supposed to do. When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field. Neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord thy God. Now that passage just tells us the poor and the stranger. Leviticus 23.22 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord thy God. It's almost an exact repetition of what the 19th chapter says. But in Deuteronomy, it feathers it out a little bit. 19th verse of Deuteronomy 24 says, When thou cuttest down thy harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. So there's where the fatherless and the widow are included. That the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thy hands. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? In other words, if you want the Lord to bless you, you better bless others. That's part of the reciprocal way that God's blessings work, you know. If you're not willing to do anything to bless anyone else, it's not likely God's going to be blessing you. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. In other words, once you've gone through it once and knocked the olives off in one pass, leave it alone. If there's still olives hanging on there that you didn't knock down the first time, let them come through and get those. It says, It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. Again, he's reinforcing the point that they suffered and they ought to know what it's like to have to suffer and not have their needs met and thus they should be generous and kind to others. So there's a process to this gleaning. Basically, it's what several of you mentioned. It was gathering up the pieces of the portions of the grain or whatever the crop might have been that was left behind after the initial harvesting was done. During the harvest, if you didn't get this out of those pastures, the corners of the fields were not to be reaped. It's almost like they rounded off their corners so the corners weren't reaped. So those that were part of that group that was in need could go and take from the corners. By the way, the corners would have been more than just what was dropped and left over. That was the prime element because they didn't reap it at all. And then anything dropped or accidentally left behind was to remain for the gleaners. One thing you had to consider is this was not passive charity. They didn't have a table there and say, everybody come and get your free grapes. You had to go and glean them. You had to pluck them off the tree, or you had to beat the olive branches yourself, or you had to go and gather the wheat. It was work. You did have to do the work to get it. So again, it was active charity, not passive charity. Though it would have had to have been much lighter work than the heavier labor of the reapers who went before them. The method in which they reaped these kind of grain crops was pretty simple. They would pass through, and the reaper would grasp the stalk with his left hand, and with his blade, he would cut, usually a sickle, he'd cut with his right hand. And then he'd have a sheaf. 
The maidens that were working in the field, some of them might have been gleaning, but others were part of the harvest process. And as the reapers got too many, they'd lay them down in rows beside the standing stalks, and the women would tie them up in bundles. Most of the reapers were pretty skilled at what they were doing, so gleaning fallen grain would have not been something that it would have been a, a wealth-building experience. It would have been subsistence living. You would have barely been able to get by by gleaning the fallen grain because they weren't going to be dropping very much. They were pretty skilled at what they were doing. It's interesting that Ruth requests permission of Naomi to go glean the ears of corn for her mother-in-law and herself. That seems to infer Naomi either wasn't willing, which I don't really think was the case, or wasn't able to go out and glean because wouldn't it have seemed wiser since both of them were widows for both of them to go out? They would have been able to gather twice as much, wouldn't they? So it looks like Naomi probably wasn't capable of doing so or that Ruth did not want her doing it. Wouldn't you say she was being a dutiful daughter-in-law? In other words, she was being obedient. Yes, I think she was showing submission by essentially almost asking permission. It seems to convey the idea that she was almost asking permission to be able to go out and glean. What a humble thing to say. It'd be like someone saying, can I go work for you? Would it be all right if I went and worked for you? Pretty humble, isn't it? She said, let me now go into the field. In other words, permit me to do it. Will you allow me to do it? And it could be because Naomi could have been physically incapable. It could be, there's for a couple reasons, that Ruth was protecting Naomi's dignity. It would have been humiliating for Naomi to have to go out there, not only to beg from her family, but let's take it down to the next level. If she had to go out into the fields among the poor and some of the ones who were suffering, now she was among that group. But think how humiliating it would have been for Naomi, who obviously, it appears, was probably a woman of substance before they moved to Moab and her husband and sons died. It would have been pretty humiliating for her. And though we don't see any hint that Naomi wanted to avoid that, I almost wonder if Ruth wasn't trying to protect her mother-in-law physically and from having to go through the humiliation. Wouldn't surprise me at all. That seems to be Ruth's spirit. And it certainly displays a tremendous humility and self-sacrificial spirit of Ruth because she was ready to go out there and do whatever it took to provide for her mother-in-law. There wasn't any question. In fact, she suggested it. The way the passage describes it here, we don't see any hint that Naomi suggested it to her. It's Ruth suggesting to Naomi that she'll go out. This is important because when you're looking at the character and spirit of Ruth, we're looking at somebody who's a picture of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is going to have to have the qualities of the bridegroom. Isn't this just like the bridegroom? Selfless, self-sacrificial, protecting others, a servant? That's right. There's an interesting rabbinic tradition, especially considering that the rabbis don't accept Jesus as Messiah, but one of the rabbinic traditions is that Ruth's humility here was a foreshadowing of the Messiah's humility. And you know what verse they tie that to? He was so humble that he would come lowly and riding on a donkey, as is described in Zechariah 9.9. Ruth is a foreshadowing of the Messiah and that he would come from her line. They were right. They just missed the one that they were talking about, didn't they? Now, in the King James Version, this gleaning that is going on is gleaning of corn. It was not corn like we think of Indian maize. It wasn't corn like we have corn in the Western world. It's not corn like we think of kerneled corn. It would have been barley or wheat. The word corn is just the word that was chosen by the translators. It's referring to grain. And this grain crop that they began with would have been barley because remember how the last chapter ended. They arrived at Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, right? As it was beginning, didn't they? I mentioned that that's pretty strategic. 
That was the best time in the world to get there. They could have got there right at the end of the harvest, and then what they would have done. They could have got there months before, in between the harvest. They got there right at the right time because there was going to be two harvests in a row. They didn't just get there for one. They got there at the beginning of the barley harvest. And it says later that they were there from the barley harvest through the wheat, which I'm going to bring up a little bit later, possibly. The phrase ears of corn is one Hebrew word. The word here, translated ears of corn, is shibalim. The singular of shibalim is shibaleth. Where in the Bible do we hear that word used? In the book of Judges. It's in the 12th chapter. Jephthah and the Gileadites, who were fighting against the Ephraimites, they were battling back and forth. And at one point, Jephthah and the Gileadites seized the fords of Jordan, which means the Ephraimites couldn't cross. And so when they went to cross, they had a passcode to determine whether or not you were really one of the Gileadites. Because the Gileadites pronounced this word shibboleth with the S-H sound. But the Ephraimites could not pronounce the S-H sound. They pronounced it Sibaleth. They couldn't pronounce the S-H and gave themselves away for their upbringing because they couldn't pronounce that. But that word Sibaleth can either refer to a stream of water or a flood, or it can refer to grains of wheat or barley. It's because they all come from a word meaning a branch. You realize how a river can represent the branching out of streams of a river or the branching out of stalks of grain? Some think in that context, in Judges 12, it was talking about the rivers because they were crossing a river. You have to pronounce the word for streams. But remember, Naomi and Ruth arrived here at the beginning of the barley harvest, which in our calendar would be about April, May. So this was barley grain. The word shebalim or shebaleth can refer to barley grain, wheat grain. It's just referring to stalks of grain. I think it's interesting that it says that Ruth hoped to find the field of someone, I'm going to say it exactly like King James says it, in whose sight I shall find grace. If you wanted to modernize that a little bit, it would mean almost exactly the same thing as saying, in whose eyes I will find favor. That type of expression is used in the Bible in several places when the speaker is seeking favor or some kind of positive treatment from somebody in a position of power. When the Egyptians are appealing to Joseph in Genesis 47:25, they use this kind of phrase. When Moses is appealing to God in Exodus 33, he uses this kind of phrase, that I can find favor in your eyes, so to speak, or I find favor in your sight. And Ruth is looking for somebody in whose sight she would find grace or favor. What do you think she meant by that? Do you think that meant that she was looking for somebody who would be a suitor or a husband for her? Somebody that would look at her and say, oh, what a pretty young girl. I think I want to marry her. I'm glad you're all nodding your head no, because I don't think that was even on her mind. There's nothing wrong with it being on her mind. She was eligible to remarry, and it would have been a great benefit if she could have remarried. It would have helped her mother-in-law. But I want you to understand, I do not think Ruth was doing anything selfishly. I think she was looking for somebody that would make sure she was protected so she could gather this grain without threat or without someone stealing it or without someone taking advantage so she could get it back to her mother-in-law. She wasn't looking for some selfish gain. Was it her right to claim, or was it a privilege to be granted to be able to clean in Boaz's fields? If you fit into one of these categories, a stranger, an orphan, a widow, she fit into two of them. Now, someone might have said, well, you're not a Hebrew widow, so we don't respect that, but she was a stranger. No matter what, she fit into one of the categories that would have given her the right to glean. The thing about gleaning is you need to find a field that wasn't already gleaned or a field that everybody didn't want to glean. Now think about this, because it almost seems like it's contradictory. 
She's looking for somebody that'll really show her favor, but the kind of person that would show her favor would probably be the kind of person who everybody would want to go to their field, right? If it's someone that's really generous, and if everybody wants to go there, that's probably not the field you want to go to because they're going to clean that out. (laughs) You know, if everybody knows, this person will. I think she was looking. Now, I'm going to use these two words intentionally because this is interesting because if you were to describe the role of a husband, this is actually what it is. I think she was looking for a protector and provider. I don't think she was looking selfishly, but she was looking for someone that would look with favor on her and provide her with an opportunity, look with favor on her and protect her. And that appears to have definitely been part of the problem is that she needed his protection because he gives some warnings even to people. Be careful. Make sure she has. There's a providing. Make sure she is given more even than anyone else. More opportunity. There's the providing side of it. And then make sure you watch over her. Make sure no one does anything to her. There's the protecting. That's the roles that a husband plays. And though I don't think she was seeking a husband, she was seeking someone that was going to be able to fill that role for her. I think this was a lot more than just finding a field. She had to find the right field. Now, we can spiritualize that, but that's important. She didn't understand that in a spiritual context. She was understanding it in the sense that I want to find a place where I'm not going to be treated with prejudice. I want to find a place where I won't have to be in danger or worry about someone doing something to me. And she might have been concerned. You'd say, well, Brother Barry, you just read us those laws. Obviously, they couldn't do that. She was a stranger. She was a widow. They had to let her be provided for. Somebody tell me what era we're living in here. What book of the Bible is Ruth occurring in the midst of? And what is said several times in the book of Judges about the condition of the people at that time? There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. If everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, you can't be certain that if you go to glean in someone's field, who knows what they could do to you? They may tell you, I'm not going to let you glean in my field. They may drive you out. They might ridicule you, make fun of you. There's all kinds of things that could occur to you. Those would be the least of which. They could injure you. They could beat you and chase you out of the field because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. We might say, well, the law of Moses says they have to let them do it. There's a lot of things the law of Moses said they weren't obeying. Someone might have said, I don't want people gleaning my field. I want every bit of it for myself. And you better believe there were people like that in the days of the judges. Judges 17, 6 and 21, 25 are the two passages that says every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This was during the time of Ruth that these statements were being made. So she could have been exposed to some prejudicial treatment by the reapers. She could have been exposed to some prejudicial treatment or abuse by other gleaners. You could see both those things happening if people didn't have a law that was constraining them and didn't have the right spirit. It might even be why at the beginning of this verse it refers to Ruth as the Moabitess. It might be a little bit of a clue that this is how she was feeling. I'm the Moabitess, and I'm going to have to go out and glean. Who knows what I'm going to have to deal with in terms of prejudice and persecution. She was looking for a place where there might be an owner of the field or an overseer of some kind that would show her favor and protection. And it's interesting, Boaz's statements, I'll give you a couple of them. In the 8th and ninth verse of the second chapter of Ruth, Boaz says unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Stay here in my field. Neither grow from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? Isn't that an interesting statement? Which means it's very possible that if he had not, some of those young men could have assaulted her because of the kind of day that these people were living in. Isn't that a shame someone as powerful as Boaz that he had to warn his own men? You think his men, of all people. But these may not have been his men. They may have been seasonal workers or some that just came in that weren't part of his household. And we can get into the types and shadows of that a little later. 
He said, when thou art a thirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn, which means he was providing for her and protecting her, the two roles of a husband. 15th and 16th verse of this chapter, when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not. Now he does two different things in this passage. Not only does he say, she can go right in there where you're harvesting and glean. That's incredible. No one was supposed to glean while they were harvesting. You had to wait till they were done harvesting. But he tells them, let her go right into the midst of the harvest, right there where the sheaves that haven't been, even been cut yet and glean if she wants, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her. In other words, intentionally drop some for her, that she may glean them and rebuke her not. Again, you see Boaz is a protection for her, isn't he? Later, Naomi refers that very thing. This is just six verses later in the 22nd verse. Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, Boaz's, that they meet thee not in any other field. Isn't that interesting? Meaning, who knows how they might treat you if they're in a field that's not Boaz's. He has put his protection on you. There's no telling what they might do to you somewhere else. So Boaz was a tremendous asset. And she got the answer to what was probably the prayer of her heart. Let me find somebody in whose eyes I'll find grace, in whose eyes I'll find favor. She sure did. She got exactly that. There's another interesting phrase in here. Her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. In Hebrew, by the way, that phrase literally says, chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz. How's that for a strange phrase? Chance chanced. Sounds like it was all just chance. It was just complete random blind luck that she stumbled on the field of Boaz. By the way, it was not something she chose. She did not know enough about where she was going to find Boaz. Naomi, I do not believe, told her where to go. I think God directed her to the field of Boaz. And the wording that it's chance chanced, if you translated it literally, seems to doubly reinforce the point this isn't her own design or conscious choice. Even the fact that they are repetitive like that is to drive home to you, she did not do this tactically. Here's a man that's single, or here's a man that is wealthy, or here's a man that's related to Naomi. No, purely by chance. From her perspective, from her perspective, it was purely by chance. She did nothing to make this happen, but it wasn't mere coincidence. It was a strategic chance encounter that was set up by God. It was chance to her, but God knew exactly what he was doing. The Hebrew word that's translated hap is mikra, M-I-K-R-E-H. It means something that occurs by itself without the person it happens to causing it. And usually it means that there is no known instigator. Now I want to focus on the fact there's no known instigator because it was the invisible hand of God that caused this. As far as Ruth was concerned, there was no way for her to understand how it is that she found this field. And what a blessing that the field she stumbles on is the exact place she needed to be. She didn't control that. She didn't create it. And there wasn't any known instigator, but there was an unknown invisible hand that led her there. She was unconsciously led by divine direction right to the field of Boaz. The Jerusalem Publication Society version of the Tanakh translates this as luck would have it. She came to the field of Boaz. I don't like that because there was no luck involved. She might have thought it was a lucky thing, but luck is not what caused her to be there. There are times that Hebrew word mikra can mean fate or destiny, and that is probably closer to what the case was here. She happened on the field of Boaz, not by chance, but by divine destiny. Now, there were fields all around Bethlehem. They belonged to different individuals. 
when we're looking at the allegorical pictures of what fields represent, you need to think about what a field is in its simplest sense. It is an area of soil where the soil can be turned over, a seed can be planted, and life can be produced. In the Bible, there's several different types of fields that are described. There are fruitful fields, there's unfruitful fields. A fruitful field is a place that's fertile. It's able to produce life, especially if it's sowed as a good seed. An unfruitful field is a place that's barren or unable to produce life. Or if it produces life, it produces wild or corrupted fruit. Like you see in Isaiah 5 or in Luke 6.43, talking about places where the seed was sown but fruit was wild or corrupted. I think allegorically, when we're talking about fields in the sense of the book of Ruth, we're talking about places where God's people are working. It's where they have an area of influence or activity. It's not just everywhere. The field, spiritually, is a place where God's people are working. When Ruth showed up to this field, she went to the place where God's people were working. Now, unfortunately, where God's people are working, sometimes there's good people working, sometimes there's bad people working. Not everybody working in the field has God's interest at heart. Not everybody working in the field is selfless. Some are selfish. And so there could be dangers even in the place where God's people are working. All the work that goes on in the church world is not under the authority of Christ. You realize how many different fields there were that weren't Boaz's field? And all these little hints you see in the book of Ruth, stay in the field of Boaz, stay by his maidens, stay by his young men. Make sure you're in his field. Don't go into these other fields. There's a reason for that, because not every field where work is being done in the name of religion is the field of Christ. There's several reasons why that might be. Some of them, there's no common ground and they don't share any borders with any field that's Christ. They are so foreign to the truth that you couldn't possibly call them a field that belongs to Christ. Some fields claim to be his, but they don't belong to him because they're sowing their own polluted seed. They either haven't been provided with the pure seed or they won't use it. And then some fields should rightly belong to him, but their ownership's been usurped by other men. Some people have taken the place of Christ, and they believe they're the lords of those harvests. Any of those things can cause that not to be his field. It could not be his field because it isn't a part of his kingdom at all. It could not be his field because it's separated away from him. It could not be his field because it won't accept the seed that he wants to sow. It could not be his field because it was stolen. Men have taken his field and are claiming ownership over it. There's only one field that truly belongs to Jesus, and it fully belongs to him. It's Boaz's field. All the fields should rightly belong to him, and one day they will. What do you think gleaning corn is symbolic of? Since that is so much of what Ruth is going to be doing in the verses that follow this, what do you think it's symbolic of that she's gleaning corn? Getting insight into the Word of God. You're harvesting souls if you're working in the planting and God field. That's what Sister Susan was saying as well. Harvesting souls, evangelistic work. Certainly there is a harvest of souls that go on. Some of the harvest pictures in the Bible are undoubtedly talking about that. Some of them are talking about what Brother Chapel brought up, where it's seeking out the Word of God. It seems as if here in Ruth, the principal meaning is working out the Word of God because of several reasons. The threshing floor element, the heap of corn, which pictures, I think, those gathered truths. I'm going to focus on that, though there is definitely, as Brother Stephen said, Sister Susan said, there is definitely a harvest element to the evangelistic work as well. I think that's a secondary element to the truth because you can't harvest anybody if you don't have the truth. Well, you can harvest them, but you'll be harvesting them into the wrong grain storehouse. The storehouse is going to be burned down one of these days. I'm going to focus initially here on this being the gleaning of the truths of the Word of God. 
because of the full context here and some of the other pictures. Seed, grain, and bread are all used allegorically of the Word of God in the Bible. And maybe there's three stages of that. Seed is used that way in Matthew 13, where the sower went forth to sow his seed. That seed was the Word of God. There is an overlap between the seed that Brother Chapel was talking about and the people that are harvested through what that seed produces. The life that seed produces that Sister Deed and Brother Stevens were talking about. So you see how there's overlap? You could even look at it as a whole curve of what has to occur. There is a harvest that if we get the truths we need and we get the order we need, we'll be able to produce the harvest. Matthew 13 is an example of the seed, as I said, being used that way. 1 Peter 1, 23, where it says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So the word of God is compared to a seed. Grain is most often used to make bread, and bread is symbolic of the word of God in several places. The twelve loaves of showbread, the manna, Jesus himself, seeing that you have to eat of his flesh and drink his blood, is a picture of taking in his doctrine and his spirit. Jeremiah 23, 28, he says, A prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? You know what he's referring to there? The difference between something that's true, a true message, and something that's a false message. So chaff and wheat. Wheat and barley represent different measures or types of spiritual knowledge. I am going to give you an alternative interpretation for barley. One of the most traditional interpretations we've had for barley has been barley represents tradition, wheat represents truth. The more that I study barley, the more that I believe that that is probably not the primary meaning of barley. The most common view that we've had on wheat and barley is based out of the statement regarding the black horse condition of the church in Revelation 6, when for the same price you could get one measure of wheat, that you'd get three measures of barley. Now, by the way, that's not extremely unusual economically because barley is not at the same level of value as wheat. It's not as valuable of a commodity as wheat. I am beginning to lean towards the interpretation that wheat and barley may represent the New Testament and the Old Testament. You'd have to explain, and I will, why I think that could possibly represent that. And this is my speculation right now, just a theory. So I don't want anyone to run off with it anywhere and start telling everybody this how it is. This is just my personal theory right now. I'll give you several reasons why. Do you realize that barley is used very positively throughout the Bible? The only place you could possibly pick out that you'd say it's being used negatively in a way that's referring possibly to the word of God or traditions is in the Black Horse Church. The only negative thing you could associate with barley in Scripture is that it's not at the same value as wheat. That's the only negative thing. There's nothing else negative said about barley in the Scripture. In fact, barley is one of their food staples. I'll give you several examples. In Judges 7.13, when Gideon was getting ready to attack the Midianites, one of the Midianites had a dream that a barley cake rolled down into the camp and did tremendous damage. What a strange dream to have. But you realize that barley cake represented, don't you? It represented the men of Israel rolling into that camp. So in that picture, at least, the barley represented the men of Israel. There isn't really any other option there. In Deuteronomy 8, 7-9, when their list is made of all the blessings, blessings, not negative things, that God's going to give in the promised land, notice what's included. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley. 
If barley was a negative, bad thing, it certainly shouldn't be included in the list of the good things that are included as part of the promised land. Vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. These are all very positive things in the scripture. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. This is another reason why I think barley may be more favorable than we're thinking. What kind of bread did Jesus use to feed the 5,000? Anyone know? Five barley loaves and two small fish. That isn't a negative, is it? It was a wonderful blessing. This is where this is maybe going to tie together. In my theory I have on this. Do you know what it was that Jesus was teaching the people? Where do you think the truths were coming from that he was teaching them? Right out of the Old Testament. Uh, you might say, well, wait a second. He was establishing the New Testament. You're right. But what did he use to establish it? The Old Testament. Do you realize historically most of the books of the New Testament were not even available to the church until after they had produced probably most of the overcomers in that early church? Right. If you understand when most of those books were written, even the Gospels, most of them were written 20 years or more that they were circulated, written and distributed after the time of Christ. Do you realize how many of the overcoming element of the early church was already produced at that time? And they were produced without having access to all the epistles of Paul and Peter and James. Thank God we have them. But do you realize there were overcomers being produced before one of those things was written? There's no record that any gospel was written at the time of Stephen, and he went on to become an overcomer, didn't he? Now, that isn't undermining the New Testament. You need to really understand what I'm saying. They were teaching the New Testament, but they were using the Old Testament scriptures for their basis. And the truths they were demonstrating were reinforced out of the Old Testament scriptures. Isn't it interesting? There's two harvests. There's a barley and a wheat. And there's two sources of food provision that are the Word of God, the Old and the New Testament. You see why I'm making a parallel with that, possibly representing that? What was Jesus using to feed the 5,000? The hope of the gospel that was contained in the Old Testament scriptures. Where did he quote from when he preached? He was quoting from the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, those men were quoting from the Old Testament. If you go through my Bible in the New Testament, you'll find all down the side, every one that I've been able to do through the years, every time I found a place where they quoted a scripture, I've noted that scripture in my margin of my Bible. And if you look through the New Testament section of my Bible, you'll see scripture after scripture after scripture listed there. They were constantly quoting the Old Testament. That was a barley harvest period. That's when Ruth first came to the church, you know. Ruth was a Gentile church. What brought her in? Those teachings. Now, when I say the Old Testament, I don't mean they were teaching the law of Moses. I mean they were using the scriptures they had to teach the new covenant. And then when new scriptures came in, it gave greater reinforcement and more illumination. But there were overcomers produced even without all of the epistles that were written, you know. There's no way around that. Paul hadn't written one epistle when Stephen was martyred, the first overcomer. And he went on to perfection without any of Paul's writings. Now, I'm not saying they're not tremendously valuable. They are. Thank God we have all of that. But do you realize there were men that went on to perfection without some of the benefits we have in terms of the spread of teaching we have? And they went on to perfection? And then notice what it says in Ruth 2.23. It says, talking about Ruth, that she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest. Now, if my speculation regarding barley and wheat represent the truths of the Old and the New Testament, do you realize that until all the truths were gotten out of that Old Testament and until all the truths were gotten out of the New Testament, that's what Ruth was going to have to continue to glean until she had gotten everything? What is the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, saints? The Old and the New Testament coming in harmony. The Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. 
Now, here's our challenge on my speculative interpretation on this. The challenge is, what do you do with Revelation 6, where it says there was wheat and barley? Usually, that's been interpreted. There was three times as much tradition as there was truth. For every one part of truth you could buy, you'd get three times as much tradition. I wouldn't argue that for a second. That was certainly the case. I'm not 100% sure that's what that language is intended to convey. If barley does represent the Old Testament, because that barley cake represented the Old Testament people of God, didn't it? Represented Israel. This is, again, speculation. I want to reinforce, this is my theory. Do you realize the kind of methods that were used under the Old Testament versus the New Testament in terms of the ministry, in terms of judgment, in terms of rituals and ordinances and order? And do you realize what kind of church that that Dark Age church became? Was it more like the Old Testament or the New Testament church in its practices? A whole lot more like the Old Testament. There were a lot of rituals in that Babylonian church. There's a lot of ordinances. Very much like what the Old Testament was like. There was severe penalties. You were killed for heresy, just like under the Old Testament. Not much mercy, not much grace. If you would interpret that speculatively the way I am, that the barley represents the Old Testament or Old Testament methods and teachings, and the wheat represents the New Testament, there was a whole lot more of the Old Testament order in that church than the New Testament order. They weren't a New Testament ministry. They were priests, just like priests in the Old Testament. I don't mean they were like them. That was God's order in the Old Testament. They had no business going back to that kind of order under grace. But that's what that church did. They went back to that Old Testament type of an order, Old Testament type of rituals. I don't mean they became messianic and celebrated Jewish feasts. They created their own rituals, but they had three times as much, if you wanted to use it that way, of the Old Testament type of order as they did of the New Testament type order in teaching. That's how I would take that. In Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, he uses elements of these things in the language regarding the field. In the parable of the sower, the wheat and the tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the treasure hid in the field. By the way, the field isn't the whole world. You know why it's not the whole world? The treasure was hid in the field, and when they found the treasure, they bought the whole field. That's not talking about, I want this whole world because there's a church in the world. No, 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 no. There's some truth in a church And I'm going to buy the order. I'm going to buy everything that I can that gave me that truth. The treasure hidden in the field is that truth that's in the body of Jesus Christ. And we'll take all to get the treasure. It's not talking about the whole field of mankind. It's talking about the field where the church is operating. There's several other biblical references that I think are interesting. You could parallel with this issue of fields. Lebanon is described as being restored to a fruitful condition. This picture is either the restoration of Israel, the church, or both. In Isaiah 29, 17, when it says, Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. You know what will make it a fruitful field? I'm telling you these scriptures so you can tie this together with the fact that she's searching for truth in this field. The very next verse in Isaiah 29 says, In that day, Lebanon's going to be turned to a fruitful field. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book. What is it that makes it a fruitful field? They find the truth. Israel's going to find the truth. And you know what's going to make the church a fruitful field in the sense of a restored church? The same thing. The level of truth that's given to the church will restore it and make the church a fruitful field. Then the level of truth that's given to Israel. There's overlap between some of these prophecies between the restoration of the church and the restoration of Israel. The deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Three chapters later, there's another example of this. Talking about lamenting and crying out over some of the conditions that they've gone through. Talking about Israel for the pleasant fields and for the fruitful vine. 
Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy and the joyous city, because the palaces shall be forsaken and the multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and towers shall be for dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until, until. Thank God for the word until in the Bible. Her brother Goodwin goes through a whole lesson one time on the phrase, but God. There's a power in that little phrase. It changes everything when the phrase begins, but God. There's another phrase you got to study in the Bible, until. That means that it can end and things can change. Until requires a change because that means something is going to happen when that until reaches its fullness. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high and the wilderness be a fruitful field and the fruitful field be counted for a forest, then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And it looks like this is tied directly to the work of the ministry. If you go forward just four verses, it says, Blessed are you that sow beside all waters, that send forth thither the feet of the ox and the donkey. So there is a sowing process that we're doing with the word of God that'll bring this fruitfulness to the field, that'll bring the outpourings of the Holy Ghost. Now you know that's talking about the ministry, by the way, because 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to 11, where Paul uses that metaphor of an ox to refer to the ministry. One of the most powerful of all these descriptions, though, is found in Isaiah 55, where God ties the working of his word to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what will produce spiritual fruitfulness. Isaiah 55, 11 to 13, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. Notice it's the word of God. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace, The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field, the trees of the field are us. If we're planted in Boaz's field and we're growing in that field, we're the trees of righteousness. They're the trees of the field. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn will come up the fir tree. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You know what a fir tree is? It's an evergreen. That's eternal life that's talking about. Instead of these thorny conditions of the curse, do you realize thorns and thistles are part of the curse? Instead of the thorny conditions of the curse, there's going to be everlasting life given. Instead of the thorn will come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting shine that shall not be cut off. That's what will happen if we work in the field of Boaz, saints. Do we glean the truths we need by working in the field of Boaz and laboring at the feet of Boaz? Eventually, the rains will come that'll water that field down, and then the increase will come that Sister Deed was talking about. People will be saved. People will grow in their faith. They'll grow from more than just a little bud breaking the ground. There'll be trees of righteousness produced in the field of Boaz. Praise his holy name. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. What an incredible picture. Somebody tell me what they think that means. Do you think trees have five digits on each hand and they're going to clap them? Do you know it's a very poetic way of saying the trees are just going to be blowing in that wind? You're going to hear the branches just rustling. It'll be like a sound of the rustling of the mulberry bushes. The Spirit of God will just rush through that field. Brother Deed, what do you have back there? How you doing, sir? Uh, in First Chronicles uh, 16.33, it says, Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Praise his holy name. That doesn't sound like something to rejoice about. Well, I'll tell you why it's something to rejoice about. It depends on whose side you're on. If you're on the Lord's side when he comes to judge the earth, what a rejoicing that'll create. The trees of the field rejoice. Beautiful passage to bring in, Brother Deed. Thank you. All the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. 
power of God is going to fall on the people of God. And the trees of the field are those that are truly developed in their spiritual maturity. They're not little plants. They've grown to full maturity. The Spirit of God is going to move through those branches. And those branches are just going to be rustling under the power of God. That's what it means. They're going to clap their hands. The hands of a tree are its branches. That means the wind of the Spirit is going to be moving so strong through those trees, the branches are just going to be crashing together. That rushing sound going through the mulberry bushes that lets you know the power of God is moving and He is on the move. The Lord is in the camp and the shout of a king is in the midst of Him. Praise His holy name.